to a podcast called Intrepid. I'm Stephanie Carvin, and I'm joined today by Leah West and the very excellent Bill Robinson. And we are going to do a review of reviews. And it's been a long time since we've done one of these where we kind of go through the reviews, but because that's because we've gone through a huge change in the way that reviews are done in this country of national security and intelligence activities. So Leah, Bill, thanks for joining me. Good to be here. Thanks for having us. Awesome. So why don't we start, Leah, you should probably provide an overview for, for those who are maybe new to the podcast or, or have not had the joy of listening to one of our review of reviews podcasts before. What has changed in this landscape over the past, say, two years? Everything. <laughs> okay. So prior to Bill C-59 coming into force, we had what we called silo review, or we would call siloed review agencies. So we had the Security Intelligence Review Committee who looked at CSIS. We had the Office of the, the Commissioner of the Communications Security Establishment, or OCSEC, who looked at CSE. And then we had the RCMP Com- Complaints Commission, who did have a, you know, a narrow remit over national security review sorry, a narrow remit over RCMP's national security policing and national security mandate. And so the big concern that had been raised for years and years and years was the siloed review didn't allow for the agencies to share or communicate with each other and to see how those agencies were working together and information would go from one to create action in the other, yada, yada, yada. And it also left out a whole lot of the national security community in Canada. So with Bill C-59, they basically closed up the shops of the OXAC and CERC and reestablished a super CERC, the National Security Intelligence Review Agency, which has a mandate to review all of Canada's national security intelligence and even national defense community as it relates to their roles with Canadian national security. So they do have some mandate over RCMP, but it's only that element of national security and the rest of what RCMP does still goes to the RCMP Complaints Commission. The other thing that's changed is there was an establishment of what's called the Intelligence Commissioner, and the Intelligence Commissioner does not retrospective review of what agencies have done. The intelligence commissioner engages in what we would consider more of an oversight role. So they confirm the reasonableness of ministerial decisions. And this is important for a couple of different reasons, but essentially in this country where our agencies are engaging in actions that trigger section eight, so your uh, right to privacy, typically we think of those agencies needing prior judicial review to engage in like intrusive collection activities. But in some cases uh, we've decided through or parliament has decided to allow the minister to, to authorize that kind of activity, but to ensure that it does comply with the charter, we've added this extra layer of kind of quasi judicial review to the minister's decision. They're basically deciding if the minister's decision is reasonable. And so that's a new agency that's also been established along with these new powers that we've given to CSIS and CSE in Bill C-59. That's great. I appreciate that overview. And actually, I want to come back to this idea of reasonableness. I think the last time we discussed that on this podcast was 
probably in the Vavilov decision where I lost my mind, the the administrative law trio, as it were. And effectively, it has an important, it's, it's reasonableness isn't just like, hey, that seems nice. It actually has meaning in terms of how we apply statutory powers in in this country, or so I have now learned with much suffering and grieving. So what I want to then ask you is, is we've, in theory, we've gone to a better system, right? A system that avoids the silos of previous reviews, the, you know, NCIRA can be much more broad in its scope. NCIRA says itself in this report, that it's not just looking at strictly legal things, it's also looking at whether things are necessary and reasonable as well. So I think that's an important point. But before we get to all that, I just want to ask you guys, have we actually improved? Have we actually seen this improvement? Like what what was in the prior reports? that you would also expect to see in these reports? Like, what did you get out of the CERC reports and the OCSEC reports? Speaking for uh, OCSEC in particular, because CSE is my area that I study, the, the OCSEC reports were a lot more substantive than what we've seen out of NCIRA this year. Now, I think you have to cut some slack for the new agency in that they only had half a year of existence to actually cover for the 2019 report. And then during that time, they had to staff up from zero, basically. They had carryover from CERC, but they, they, they got nobody from the office of the CSE commissioner who went over to NCIRA. So they had to staff up from, from zero in order to do any kind of review of CSE. So let's cut to a bit of a break that there's gonna be a, a decline in, in coverage in, in this report, but, it, but it's quite a significant change, a drop. Uh, so, so there was a, where typically in OCSEC you would get uh, coverage of six or seven reviews during the previous year. What we had here was one that was actually done by NCIRA, one of the standard types that OCSEC would have done, plus a mention of two that were carried over from OCSEC. So that was a lot, a lot reduced, and, and there was regular reporting of statistics in the OCSEC reports, which I thought was quite important for, for those of us in the public trying to assess CSE's activities and, and how the extent to which Canadians are drawn into those activities, which is one of the key questions. There was regular statistical reporting in OCSEC on, on those questions about the number of private communications that CSE had recognized and collected in its foreign intelligence program and the number that had been reported in end product reports by CSE and so forth. That, that material is not in this report and it's not clear whether it will be or not. Now there is a one thing I think worth saying here too, which is, and CIRA is working on a slightly different model of what's going to appear in its annual report, which is it's going to talk about cross-cutting issues and overall themes and so on in the main report, and then each separate review will be released as its own report. I believe this is the plan. So some of this material is likely to appear in the future in these separate reviews that get released. And that's a, I think that's a reasonably good model that they're proposing to do here. But it, it, but it remains to be seen in part because we haven't seen what these review reports are, except for one which was released. And secondly, I think there's going to be a bit of a problem when you're interested in a particular agency. Over time, there's going to be a problem finding out what NSIRA has said about that agency, because it won't really be clear in the annual reports. 
And if you have to search through 10 or 20 or 30 or 50 re review reports every year in order to find what's about what's been said about a particular agency each year, then you're quickly going to get lost in the, in the mass of material and not be able to pull it together. So I think there's, there's a need for maybe a third level of reporting, which is agency by agency, where we can keep track of, of which reports have come out about which agencies and, and general overall information about those agencies, like the standard statistical reporting that's, that's not there right now. So if I take what you just said, so what you used to take out of the prior reports were the review of activities, usually about six or seven, and there were a number of statistics you used to be able to get out of the OCSEC reports that you found useful for your research. And I remember one of the ones you used to talk a lot about was the interception of private communications. Although that statistic fluctuated a bit, I think because of the way they had changed the, the, what they considered to be an interception of private communication over time. So, but, but still, it gave some ideas as to the amount of activity. Yeah, it's one of the few measures that was available to us. And yeah, it did fluctuate because of policy reasons, what would be counted and technology reasons in terms of how communications have changed over the years. And, and, and exactly what, how those different changes affected the numbers could never really be explained to us for security reasons. So, so it, was, uh, it was a bit of a guessing game, but still it was a measure. And, uh, and when you saw it change from year to year, you could at least ask, well, what's the basis of this change? And it, it was, I think, I best understood as a, a proxy for, for numbers that they wouldn't tell us, which is how many Canadians' communications were actually being intercepted by this agency. And how often were those communications ending up reported in the, in the products that CSE produced? Now, when I say Canadians communications intercepted, maybe I should make it clear that we're talking about the foreign intelligence program of CSE and it cannot target Canadians under that program. So we're talking about foreign targets whose communications are intercepted, but those communications happen to involve a Canadian at the other end. So this is called incidental collection of Canadian communications. And this is how Canadians end up get drawn into the foreign intelligence program of CSE. Anyway, this, this number of, the, of private communications and how often they appeared in reports was really one of the only measures we had for, for how often Canadians are in fact being drawn into CSE's program. So to see it, it disappear, and, and I'm not entirely sure from having spoken to the agency that they are convinced it should come out again. I, I think I find that quite, quite concerning. That's actually something I want to get to because it's something that's explicitly into this report. But before we do that, Leah, I'd be interested in what you have traditionally got out of these kinds of, of review reports every year for your research. Yeah, so... Being the nerd that I am, I I looked forward every year to the CSE's annual review because this was, or annual report, because this was the only real way, aside from getting decisions from the court about the activities CSIS was engaging in, which tend to be, at least in the past, only published when something bad happened. I mean, that's happening less and less. The court is becoming more transparent and, and releasing more and more decisions, even when it's not finding some sort of egregious action by the service. But other than that, this was kind of our only insight into what CSIS was doing 
especially because like CISA's speech, director speeches only happen once every couple of years, right? So it was a way of seeing what was going on in the service. And by having the review agency tell us about their review of that element of the service's activities, and then just you know, making a decision about whether they thought that, that those activities were compliant with policy and law, providing some recommendations. And also it was kind of telling to see how CSIS would respond to that. And, you know, CERC reports on findings that CSIS was engaged in certain activities that they thought, well, maybe they didn't have lawful authority for, or maybe they were going outside their the, the bands of their remit, right? tended to be kind of the fuel for discussion about new legislation and new powers and that kind of stuff. I didn't get really any of that in this report, right? There wasn't a whole lot about what CSIS is doing in this report. In terms of CSIS, there was the data that that is in previous reports, but that's because it's required by statute to be there. So we did see that, but there wasn't really any discussion around it. And to me, trying to read between the lines of what those numbers actually told me, they told me something shocking, but there was no discussion about why it was shocking. So why I would look to the reports in the past to understand these agencies, to understand more about what they're doing and to understand whether or not they were com- being compliant with policy and law. That's why I went to the report and there wasn't a whole lot of that in this report. Yeah, I can understand why you would say that. I realized, I think I had gotten up to page 63 of the report and I hadn't really learned that much. There's a lot of background in here. And the discussion of CSIS is actually just a history of naughty things CSIS has done in the past and some federal court decisions and things like this. And I, I was a bit surprised by that. And, you know, it, it, I suppose they're setting the context here. What I like about this report is the fact that it is trying to introduce itself to the Canadian public, right? It's saying, this is who we are. This is why we exist. And here's some problems in the past. And these are the kinds of things that we're going to be seized with. That's good. But I kind of almost felt like that should be a separate document or a separate report. Like this is who we are and these are our principles. And, you know, I guess we're kind of getting what's into the report now is that they introduce this idea of how they're going to organize their investigations in terms of something they call the information continuum. And this is different from the intelligence cycle. We always teach the, you know, if you take, you know, intelligence in, in university, they teach the intelligence cycle. Well, what we're talking about here is the information continuum, which they break down into collection activities, how information and people are safeguarded, sharing So how information is actually shared between agencies and partners, and then finally action, what you actually do with the information. I actually thought that was a good breakdown, but I kind of felt like there was so much background here. It it was a bit like an academic article where you have to go through so much just to kind of get to the fine meat of of the, the argument, but there wasn't a lot there. And so I kind of almost wish the kind of academic part of the exercise, which as an academic, I always welcome, was a bit more of a separate document. And then findings, or even if you're just trying to carry over the findings from CERC, and in some cases, the the OCSEC, they did that as well, that would have been almost more of a standalone document in and of itself. Yeah, and I think, and Bill raised a good point about the fact that they signal to us that their intent in the future is to publish reviews as they're coming out, right? So the stuff that Bill and I would look for in our reports, we're going to get we don't have to wait annually anymore. We'll presumably get all that stuff as it happens. But 
the problem I had with this report is that there are a whole lot of reviews that were undertaken, presumably, between the collapse of CERC and, CISA and OXEC, right, and this report coming out. And there was nothing there for us, really. There was no real meat for us about those. And then they just kind of charged ahead with what they're going to do in the future. So it was like this annual report is going to look like what the future annual reports are going to be because they're going to be thematic. They're going to talk about structure and priorities and goals. And, and that's great because it'll be supplemented by all of the reviews that they would have done already and released that year. But in this case, there was nothing that they'd released prior and we were kind of waiting for it. We were looking for that as well, and it was absent. So I think they needed to perhaps do more of a bridge between the old and the new than what they actually did here in this report. But that's my my personal preference. I mean, I don't understand why they can't just all reflect our personal preferences, Leah. I think that's... They didn't ask. Like... They didn't really ask me, so... <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so let's maybe then take a look. Okay, well, well what is here? We can kind of look at the four kind of main sections that they set out. So the first one of these is collections. So how agencies in the national security and intelligence community get information. And some of the, they, they kind of really highlight three themes here. Uh, the first is bulk data. What do you do when you can buy these kind of large bulk data sets and then go use artificial intelligence to sort through them to, to find patterns? Is there risks there to privacy and you know how, how are these kinds of things managed? They talk a little bit that they're going to look more into human source activities, but I think if there was kind of a buried lead in this section, it was on geolocation, which is, I think, one of the biggest findings of this report, which is that they felt that CSIS's use of geolocation data violated Section 8 of the Charter, which is which is a lot. Which, <laughs> and they actually had to uh, use, under their uh, legislation, they had to actually write a letter to the minister saying, we found a, a Section eight violation of, of the charter in terms of how CSIS is using this data. So, I mean, you guys are more experts on geolocation data and implications for privacy here. So I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts on that. So essentially on, on this issue, we don't know a lot. And again, this is part of my problem is that this is a big finding conceivably that CSIS acted unlawfully, not illegally, but unlawfully. And with respect to its use of geolocation data, so we know that NSIRA conducted a review on CSIS's use of geolocation data without a warrant and found that doing so violated Section 8 of the Charter. Presumably that meant that the information was collected without a warrant, right, through some technological means or maybe even just provided to them by a, a partner or or dropped into their laps, who knows, however they got it, but it was without a warrant, and that the information derived from that did reveal um, personal details about a Canadian or a person in Canada, presumably. Now, they talked about the fact that they reviewed the decision-making process to, that led CSIS to use that data and found that there wasn't enough policies or procedures to ensure that CSIS got legal advice right, before they actually engaged in that practice. So presumably the decision was made by CSIS officers or analysts without actually going up to get a legal opinion before they did it. But that's pretty much all we know. We, other, other than that, we know that they sent off a letter to the Minister of Public Safety. We don't know what CSIS's response was. Typically in the past, 
when there's been a finding by a review agency, we would also see how the agents, the CSIS or, or CSU responded to that. We, we don't see that here in this case. We don't know what CSIS had to say about this instance. Yeah, I thought, I thought the lack of response was odd in, in the sense that at least CSIS can say, yes, we take this on, you know, even if you can see like the grudging, <laughs> the grudging. We don't know if the, if, the, if the agency agrees with this finding. Yes, that's actually true. That, and that's the bigger thing. Uh, but like, you know, also, but sometimes they say, yes, we agree. And we've made these, ch- we've made changes, or they can say, no, we disagree. And, and it goes from there. But yeah, I agree. There, there's that lack of insight there. That's important. The other thing is here too, under collection, should note that even though uh, this is a very CSIS heavy report with a little bit on CSC, and then, but then they say they're also going to conduct similar reviews with CBSA, DND CAF, Global Affairs Canada, the Immigration Review and Immigration Refugee and Citizenship Canada, Transport Canada, and uh, eventually the Public Health Agency of Canada and what MEDINT or medical intelligence is. So there's a lot more here to come in terms of reviews. I know we'll have a little bit more to say on that in, in just a minute. But yeah, so that's what we can expect. But hopefully these agencies will also be given, as you say, a chance to say whether or not they agree and whether or not they're making changes as a result of the NCRA findings. Well, and I'll just, I'll say, I'll go back to one thing is that one of the things we get in this report is an an enunciation of NSIRA's values, which I think is important. It's establishing itself. It, you know, values are not statutorily mandated. And some of the values here that they're putting forward is transparency, methodological rigor, and forward thinking, which as a retrospective review body, we can talk about whether I think that's appropriate. But but in this case, methodological excellency could go back to the idea of what is the rigor behind the legal findings. And I know that in past reviews, CSIS has taken exception of the basis for certain legal findings by CERC, and we don't get any of that here. So if, you know, methodological excellence is something that we should expect from Zyra. I would like to see more of that when they're actually talking about their reviews and their findings and their response to the agencies. Interesting. You know, I think this highlights the fact that this model of annual report could work if the reviews that they're that have taken place in that year have already been released and made made public, and we've we've seen the details. And this just this report just notes that these reviews all happened, but with the annual report coming out before most of these other documents in this case, we're left with this position as, as Leah said, of, of no details at all about what actually is, is going on here. So uh, yeah, it's, it's a problem. So let's move on then to safeguarding. And here they acknowledge, okay, there is no definition of what safeguarding actually means, but it, it implies like the way, how you keep your people safe and how you keep the information safe. If, if you want a definition, this is a term used by Craig Forces and I in our textbook, along with the systematic approach that Ensira tends to use throughout this, you can see Craig Forces' fingerprints all over this report. So if you want a definition of safeguarding, check out our book, National Security Law by Erwin Law. Thank you for that plug. I should say Craig is a member of NCRA. He's a founding member of the podcast. He has nothing to do with this podcast that we're taping now. I don't even know if we gave him a heads up that we're doing it. So, so surprise, Craig. But yeah, so yeah, but there is a safeguard. So okay, there is a definition in, in the book. Unfortunately, the book is not law, even though some would 
argue it should be, but it, so it, it really three, three things here. It talks about insider threats uh, as an issue it wants to look more into the polygraph and problems that have come up with that before Leah, you and I have both done those before and, and they're not fun by any means. They're not fun. And then finally there's whistleblowing. And I actually think this is an important thing. And we've talked about this on the podcast before. I believe it's episode 101, where there is no external mechanism. If you are in the community and you feel that there's wrongdoing, there's almost no recourse for you to go public with it without enormous risk on yourself, like to the point where you could be arrested for violating the Security of Information Act. So I thought that was an interesting thing. Yes. And here what Insira is saying is it, it understands that the legislation gives them a role in terms of whistleblower protection, but it didn't have its own policy or regulation for how to go about fulfilling that role. So the agency is saying essentially that we went ahead and, and came up with that process. Okay, so let's then move on to sharing. So here, this is basically how information is shared with partners in Canada. You know, we've talked about this with regards to the, we went from Skiza to Skida. They both still sound like pretty unfortunate names either way, but it's the Security of Information Disclosure Act. And in this section, really, there's a couple of themes. One is intelligence evidence. Everyone drink. It's been, it's been a while. That's still a thing. And one of the issues I think that where you do see, and, and this is where you do see the advantage of a model that can look across the community, is the Canadian identity information. This is where often, and Bill, you can speak to this, don't let me prof explain it, but the fact that in doing its reports, that sometimes occasionally a, a Canadian will be intercepted. And it is, if it is deemed of interest, the report will say a named Canadian but will not identify who that person is. And then correct me if I'm wrong here, the service can then request to know who that person is for the purpose of an investigation. There's a whole procedure there, but NCR is raising some issues here and they're saying they want to review how that's done. Yeah, I think, well, that's one of the areas that OXAC would look at every year in terms of CSEs, use of Canadian identity information. Yeah, I think it'd be very interesting to see that taken across the whole community more too, and, and comparing how different agencies do that and the legal requirements for how they protect that information across agencies will be a really interesting comparison, I think. It's another case where you would see numbers reported in OXAC reports, and, and we don't see them here. Maybe we will in the uh, review report that gets released in future. And I think that there's room to, to push on that subject because in fact, what's been released under the Access to Information Act is, is slightly more informative even than what OXEC was reporting. And that's saying a lot. And, yeah, it is saying a lot. And, and so there's, there's room to improve even on that in terms of like the fact that when these requests are made for the release of information that has been suppressed in this reporting, it's almost always released is, is, is just a fact that hasn't really been documented publicly except now through the Access to Information Act, but it's, it's an important aspect of looking at that whole system. So the, the other theme under this point that I think is worth talking about is uh, sharing with partners in the ministerial directive that was incorporated into Bill C-59 is now the law with regards to ensuring that information shared with partners is not going to be used to torture someone or alternatively what to do when you receive information that you as an agency believe was derived from torture. And 
one of the things that kind of actually shocked me, and again, this was a bit of a buried lead here in the report, is that there is no requirement for the service director to know when legal services disagrees with a course of action, that the decision as to whether or not to proceed is based simply on a vote with majority rules within, I guess, the organization. But legal services is really just one voice in that. And the director doesn't necessarily know that legal services disagrees. This seems very problematic to me. Well, again, putting my old legal services hat back on, you legal services provides advice. They don't make decisions. Right? Fair. So, Same with intelligence uh, analysis, but still. Yeah. So I think certainly what the advice of legal services is should be well known to those making decisions and it should be sought. But ultimately, the end of the, at the end of the day, it's not le- up to legal services to have a vote in what proceeds. But do you, did you feel, I mean, I agree with that. I don't think legal services advice should be like the final yay or nay. I think it should be up to the director because the director is accountable for the organization. But the idea that the director should know that legal services disagrees seems, I mean, to me as the non-lawyer, well, yeah. like something you'd want to know. Like something you- I would think maybe, he would want to know. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, so putting I, a requirement I, there might be a good idea? I- Again, it may be one of those things where in practice, it's always the case because the legal director sits, you know, on the kind of executive board at CSIS. So I don't, I don't know if it actually has an impact to say that there's not a requirement there, you know, but I think it would be wrong to say that a requirement that legal services has to agree, but it may just simply be a fact that like it happens anyway, and it would be good policy to make sure it's included. But again, we don't know because there's a lack of depth in all of these issues. Right, which may be coming in further reports or might not, we'll, we'll find out. And finally, we have action. So this is the fourth area and they conveniently broke it down for us into operations, law, and then administration. So when basically when, when you're acting upon uh, the information that you have or using the powers that you have. And in the first one, again, this is a really interesting thing. And Bill, I think this is in your wheelhouse. They talk about the fact that civil they, they've met with civil society. I mean, there's a whole section on how they're trying to engage with different actors. And it was expressed to them that there's a lot of concern that there's not enough oversight of active cyber operations and defensive cyber operations, that, and that this actually raises concerns under Section 8 of the Charter. Do you have views on this? Yeah, I'll, I'll leave the legal issues to the uh, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it's a huge change in the in the nature of CSE to go from a, an intelligence agency, a collection agency, a reporting agency, to a, one that engages in covert action effectively. And and it's a bigger question than just CSE too about what the Canadian government is doing in this space and uh, how that is governed there's a there's a procedure in the act for for approving CSE operations but there's also operations by the Canadian forces and potentially threat reduction measures by CSIS might get into that space too and how is all this governed how does it all fit into a broader Canadian policy on the future of cyberspace and and so forth. Uh, how, how do you deconflict? Uh, so it's a huge area, I think, that, that needs to be looked at in the nature of the program, who's playing and what's going on, and what potentially could go on. Now, they have said that they, they intend to 
and Syria has said they intend to pay quite a bit of attention to this. And I'm glad to see that because I think it really is an area that that uh, deserves a lot of attention. I mean, yeah, I think that there's been a lot of concerns. Certainly when Bill C-59 was going through, a lot of groups argued that there should be, like the intelligence commissioner, some kind of quasi-judicial review with regards to warrants for some of these operations right now. I mean, I'll let Leah, I'll let you explain because this is this is your jam with regards to what's there. And I'd be interested in your views too. But that was something we did actually hear during all of the very quiet debates on C-59 within our nerdy little world. <laughs> Yeah, so the, the debate was, should G, should CSC require more than ministerial approval to engage in active or defensive cyber operations? And the answer I consistently gave and others did was that this is more like the types of activities that we allow the executive to undertake under Crown prerogative rather than intrusive collection activities that violate Canadians you know, Section 8 rights, therefore necessitating prior judicial review to make sure that that's reasonable. Like these are very different types of things to put the judiciary over top of executive action taken in active or defense of Canadian national security is not something we do, right? We, in the threat reduction context, it's there where the threat reduction by CSIS might violate the charter rights of an individual. And so there you're seeing um, that authorization as a way of making that infringement on rights reasonable, but it's not blessing the actual active engagement in threat disruption, right? So it's, it's a different kind of concept. And I don't think it's appropriate to have the judiciary overseeing the executive when it's, we're talking about, you know, defense of the realm type stuff. Crown um, prerogative, crown prerogative. Where's Phil Lagasse? Yeah, precisely. <laughs> so, but, you know, others would say certainly active and defensive measures could also violate rights. And in that case, right, <laughs> we would definitely need to limit the rights infringements. But there's a debate there about whether or not an active and defensive cyber operation that has to be targeted at non-Canadians abroad would, in fact, violate the charter. So, you know, there's, that's an entirely different podcast in the subject of my entire dissertation, but as it stands, it's not the same thing as saying you need a warrant in a CSIS context because you're going to violate the charter and getting a warrant makes that charter violation reasonable. I'll let you guys fight that out later. But I mean, it was interesting to see that in the report. And, and Bill, I'm glad that's something that you welcome. And look, I think more transparency and review of these things will hopefully either illuminate what's happening and potentially to to alleviate any concerns, but or or maybe augment them, who knows where this is going to go in the future, but it's something to put out. Just on that point, again, in this report, Cyrus says, like, look, we're taking our job, not just at looking at compliance with law and policy, we're also going to assess the reasonableness and necessity of the actions that are being taken. Is there a sound policy reason? Or is there a sound need for engaging in the certain activities? And I think that's where you know, uh, appropriate review of active and defensive cyber operations, for example, um, could be that where that review mechanism could be engaged in. So it may not be about the lawfulness of it, but about whether or not it's reasonable and necessary. And there's a sound policy basis for engaging in that kind of activity. Can you just, so I, I talked about this beginning of the podcast. This, this is a theme that keeps coming up actually in both reports that we want to talk about. Can you just explain reasonableness and necessity within the context of administrative law? 
I mean, it, can you summarize it? I mean, it's very easy. It's not like people have written entire books or theses about these before, but it, in brief. So reasonableness in a decision is not necessarily the same thing as reasonableness in administrative law. And necessity is not a thing in administrative law, but is something that we see often in terms of like the use of force or in international law contexts. So these are terms that are used interchangeably in a variety of contexts, and they mean different things at different times. But to go back to your real point, real question, which is like when we talk about the intelligence commissioner reviewing the reasonableness of the minister's decision, right? That is an administrative law question. And it stems from this idea of, okay, some decisions are either right or wrong, they're correct or incorrect, but other decisions might have a variety, you, you might have a variety of options and the options might all be options that you can engage in, right? A logical chain of reasoning would allow you to take X, Y, or Z option. And a decision is reasonable if that chain of reasoning makes sense within the law and the facts that are before the decision maker. It's deferential. It says you had a variety of possible outcomes, right? We're not deciding whether or not you picked the right one. We're deciding whether or not you picked a reasonable one. So when the question of reasonableness is applied to a minister's review decision about issuing a warrant or not, right? It's not just going to be binary, one would think. I'm not the intelligence commissioner, but I would think he'd say, okay, what were the facts before the minister? What was asked of him? What conditions did they put on the authorities or not? How did they tailor this? And did, before they ultimately determined that thesis could go ahead and engage in this kind of activity. So it's a reasonableness review. Is the minister's decision here reasonable? Not whether, whether it was correct, because it does give deference to the minister. So I guess my question is to you then, Leah, is the way reasonableness is being used in the NCR report the same as it's being used in the Office of the Intelligence Commissioner report? I don't think so. Okay, so that doesn't help me at all. They don't really explain it. And I think it would come down to us actually seeing how it's applied in a future review to understand what they mean. Okay, that's fun. So the other areas of action include law, which is CBSA and RCMP. And it really is unfortunate that, you know, there still is no proper review agency for CBSA. And there's a very weak one right now for RCMP. And the bill that was supposed to bring that forward, Bill C-3, is, is dead and I don't know if we'll ever see it again in our lifetime or, or, or when that may happen in the post-pandemic future. And then finally, there is this administrative section, which is the administrative law, which, Lee, you've kind of already hinted at, so it won't make you do it again. But it looks at the process of how administering a statutory power may be taking place. So that includes uh, Global Affairs Canada and sanctions, how the Investment Canada Act is going to be implemented. That's going to be really interesting because the ICA Act is in and of itself a black box. Finally, Finally, uh, the Secure Air Travel Act, which is good too, because I mean, for years that was a an instrument that you know affected groups like the No Fly Kids. That there really wasn't a legal remedy for them. So, looking at how that is is being administered is is I think very important because that too has been something of a black box uh, going forward. So, I guess in the end, we we've talked a lot about this report. I should say it's you know for. <laughs> A first report, even though it was six months, it was 94 pages. So it is a, a, a chunk, even though we're complaining a little bit that there's not a lot in it. In terms of the, the good things, I think I'll conclude it you know, on, a, on a happy note with this one, which is that there's a very clear willingness to work with 
other review bodies and agencies and making sure that these things are coordinated so that we can talk about the fact whether or not these you know, departments and agencies are going to be reviewed to death because there's a lot of reviews that are going to be coming out in the next couple of years. And I think making sure that this is coordinated across the community is going to be extremely important. And you do see that in this NCERA report. Did you guys have any other takeaways? Yeah, I'll just say that I wrote down, I think, as I was going through it, 19 separate reviews that NCERA intends to do either in the next year, and some of them were in the next three years. That's 19 reviews that are not statutorily mandated. That's on top of the seven annual reports or reviews or audits that are required of NCIRA every year. This is an organization that has a staff of 175 in, in the business of review. I think I mean, that is a huge addition in terms of workforce to what we saw at Cirque and OXEC. Huge. But I do still think that it is very, very ambitious. And I'm just concerned about the idea of looking at everything all at once will also allow some of the things that Cirque and, and OXEC were doing on a routine basis to fall through the cracks. And maybe I will be pleasantly surprised. But I just think we are asking a whole lot of Insira, and Insira is now asking a whole lot of itself. And we continually kind of place our acceptance of new authorities for CSC and CSIS in particular in the hands of Insira. We say, well, it's okay. We have all these new powers, but Insira will make sure it's fine. But, you know, they can only do so much. And I'm, I'm a bit concerned that what they plan to do on top of what they must do is just for an agency that does, doesn't have a chair that is down a member, you know, and has a new and evolving staff and, that are still figuring their way out and agencies that are still figuring their way out around review, that this might be a whole lot to ask for one agency in the next year to three years. I mean, yeah, they have definitely come out swinging with a super ambitious agenda. And I think I share those concerns. Bill, do you have anything that you would add on the NCERA report? Um, well, I, I would endorse those concerns and, and also say that I, you know, I admire the ambition and, and applaud it too, and, and hope to see the agency successful. But one thing I would like to just call out briefly is that there was a little dispute between NCIRA and CSC over publishing the numbers of ministerial authorizations. Right. And uh, I was glad to see NCIRA pushing back on that and in fact actually publicly noting that they disagreed with CSC on this question. I think it's good for them to be to push back on these things and to, and to make sure that this, this isn't a behind the scenes kind of fight, but that we hear about these things a little bit. And it was especially ironic because then the intelligence commissioner in effect published some of those numbers when his report came out. So that in the end, uh, we, we knew what some of them were anyway. But it kind of highlights the, the uh, ridiculousness sometimes of, of what CSC and these agencies consider secret, the kind of reflexive secrecy that that they that they t approach that they take, which makes it hard for them sometimes to take it seriously when they say we do need to keep things secret because of course they have many things that they need to keep secret, but when they draw the line at this level of things, there's no reason to pretend that this is not 
information that could be public or has been public in the past. And when uh, they're just undermining their own case. Anyway, it's good to see Ansira fighting back on that. Yeah, I think that's true. And I, I was also shared those concerns, you know, in this era of transparency, not to put out numbers that I think actually ended up coming out in different ways anyways, was a little bit odd and bizarre. And it, the CSC has not covered itself in glory in this report, frankly, <laughs> even even if I think CSIS gets dumped on perhaps the most, but I thought CSC's unwillingness to just share fairly basic information was was a bit surprising. Okay, on that note then, let's turn to more reports. The other one we have here, and I appreciate listeners' time, but we have the Office of the Intelligence Commissioner. This is a, a much more thin report. I mean, we're dealing, we're going from 94 pages, I think, to about 27 pages, of which I think there's really only about five of substantial content. When I read this, I was a bit disappointed. It doesn't really have the grandiose approach of NCIRA. Now, to be fair, the uh, Office of the Intelligence Commissioner based on its own report, has about 10 staff. And I, it, although it has a far more narrow mandate, I mean, Leah, you explained the, the, the mandates earlier in the podcast, which is really about data sets and, and kind of providing oversight for certain national security operations. Did, did you guys have any main, I mean, I really don't have that much to say here other than I didn't get a huge amount out of this report, but this is more your area of specialties. So I'd be curious as to what you guys have to say. I loved this report. (laughs) Of course you did. (laughs) And everyone was like, oh, there's pretty graphics. And I'm like, but it actually tells me something that's useful. And like, get straight to the point. I love that. I learned stuff from this report. Now I learned stuff because I'm a super nerd like Bill. I love you, Bill, but also you're a super nerd. And we like (laughs) pay attention to like the little nitty, nitty gritty stuff. And so I could interpret a lot from this report. However- but it required interpretation. Like you have to be in the weeds to understand what's happening here. Yes, but, and some of the best stuff was in footnotes. Like take that out of the footnotes and like, just tell it to me, right? Like the fact that the times that the intelligence commissioner told people no, yes. right? That's great, right? Why did you tell them no? Like the fact that you're telling them no shouldn't be in a footnote. And, it, and they did go, and they, the report does go in and say in vague language, as it would need to be, like sometimes I found that the minister was making decisions that maybe I had to read between the lines to get the facts from, and I couldn't tell why the minister was making that decision. Or the minister had accepted a condition and the condition wasn't clear from the material before him that that was necessary or why, or, you know, the chief of CSC had asked for something and there had been approval, but the minister never referred to the thing that they'd asked for. And there's actually, actually one here where they said the minister didn't even write their conclusions. Yeah. Like, so, that seems like a bit of a mistake. So in, in this sense, right, the IC is being like, yo, my job is reasonableness review. And in that, I'm assessing your decisions based on the material that was put before you, Minister, by the chief of the CSD. And I'm finding some of this wanting, right? Either in what was put before you that you ultimately allowed to happen, or the fact that you didn't reference what was put before you when you made a decision. And apparently, the minister got better at it, right? And also, we saw that with with CSIS, asking for justification regime authorizations. They, they went, they got denied some of them, 
they went back and got more. And seemingly it's because they got better at justifying what they were asking for, right? They, they became more clear, more deliberate, potentially provided more evidence, right? This is all really good stuff and exactly what you would want to see, this kind of iterative learning process that gets the agencies and the ministers to a point where, you know, a quasi-judicial review body can say, yes, this decision is reasonable. And I think that's great. And you can learn that from this report. And so I really hope to see that in the next report, the ICL will come back and be like, this is what they did last time. This is how they've improved. And this is where we still found that they didn't improve if that was, a, that was an issue. So I think that's, you know, they can't give us a whole lot because the, as you said, the mandate is narrow. They don't have this sweeping remit of Ensira. But in terms of what their job is, they told us what they were doing. They told us what the other agencies did and they showed us how there were improvements. And I think that's great. Bill, did you come to similar conclusions? Yeah, I was, I was pretty happy with, with what we got from the intelligence commissioner too. Uh, and I certainly learned things. Uh, one thing I learned is uh, there's apparently the possibility of partial approval of ministerial authorizations. Yeah, that's interesting. Where you could take a curate's egg approach and say, well, this part's approved and that part's not approved. And uh, yeah, I wonder if, if he, the intelligence commissioner is kind of pushing against the limits of his power to see what he can what he can accomplish here because he was not really empowered to say, no, you can't do this, but you can do this in the sense of come back to me with, with such and such. But he's sort of sending that message by, by reading things into the record here and saying, well, okay, but I pulled out this from, from this bit of background information. And because of that, I agree you made a reasonable decision. And so and he's sort of sending messages about what an appropriate uh, request for an authorization should be and uh, that's interesting and as i say it's interesting that you could potentially partially approve a ministerial authorization and i think that the reason why you see that there is is these these are really kind of omnibus authorizations that we're talking about here if we're talking about three three authorizations for the entire signals intelligence program of cse over one year you're talking about a lot of activities that fall under any one authorization. For example, one of them might cover everything that you need to stick up an antenna in order to intercept, whether it's a cell phone or it's a satellite message or it's a high frequency radio thing. They're probably all separate kinds of activities that all fall under one single ministerial authorization. And so potentially maybe if things weren't properly assessed in these authorizations, some of those things would be approved and the other part would not be approved. So that's interesting to see that that potential is there. Yeah, the same goes for classes of Canadian data sets and justification activity, right? So again, as Bill mentioned, four types of classes of Canadian data sets authorized, right? Yeah, yeah the numbers means, seem low, right? <laughs> well, it, it, it does. It does if you were expecting granularity here, but it doesn't if you were looking at the UK model that basically says, looks at classes of data sets as these big kind of giant buckets, like location data, right? Like what falls under location data, right? Like all kinds of things or, you know, personal information, right? So it seems to be that the classes that the minister is asking for are quite broad 
and, and I'm interpreting that based on the fact that they only asked for four. And again, with the justification scheme requests, so that's the, the regime that allows CSIS to break the law to fulfill its mandate, right, which they got their hands slapped for by the court this summer. Basically, like, if you need to give five bucks to your human source and your human source has to be associated with the terrorist organization, okay, that's technically a violation of our terrorism offenses, but that's fine because it's justified in this context, right? So those types of justification regimes, and this is where we saw the partial authorization here was, you know, they asked for seven different, I don't know how they're classifying it, but seven different measures to use under the justification scheme and like three got authorized, right? So that makes sense to me in the sense that like the when that came up to the IC, he could say, okay, the minister approved seven. I see a justification here, an evidence-based justification here and reasonable limits for three of them, but I'm not satisfied on four. And then they went back with another seven and got them all approved. So that's where I see that. The last thing I'll say that I think I really did learn from this, and then I went back to Insyra and realized I should have learned it from the Insyra report, but it got drowned out is that up until December of 2019, CSIS had not asked or sought permission from the federal court or gotten a requested approval of the minister's authorization for data sets. And I think this is really important and I and I'm going to it's going to take me a, a minute to explain why. So bear with me. So under the data set regime, the data set regime was a result of what we recall being the ODAC decision, the finding that CSIS was retaining metadata from information it had lawfully intercepted and wasn't telling the federal court about it. And the federal court said, you're not allowed to do that. And they ultimately had to change the CSIS Act to allow for the retention of data and data sets. And it created this whole new regime. And part of that regime is If they want to retain data that's Canadian or about Canadians, they need to go to the federal court and get permission. And if they want to retain data sets that are foreign or about foreigners, they need to get the minister's approval or their delegate, which we know is the CSIS director. And we get that from this IC's report. And then the IC has to review um, and approve the minister's decision. Okay. Basically, CSIS under the CSIS Act gets 90 days. Every time a new data set comes in, they have 90 days. They get to scrub it, decide whether they want to keep it, yada, yada, yada. Got to go ask for permission from the court or from the director. Now, we also know from the ODAC decision that CSIS had data sets, right? That's what was in the ODAC, and the federal court didn't make them get rid of it, right? So 90 days from the time that this, this new authorization regime was put in place, right? Came into force in July. That means October, 2019. That's when the 90 days ran up. But by December of 2019, CSIS had made no requests of the federal court and the ICT had reviewed no requests of the minister to keep data sets. So what's happening? Like, did they dump everything they had? Have they not been compliant? Has this been held up by the minister? Like, what is going on here? Because in the first six months of having authorizations for data sets, which we know that they already had, there's been no request to keep them. And And it's not like they they didn't request to keep them. Yeah, they have to get rid of them. Right, and it's not like they didn't know this legislation wasn't coming down the pipeline. No, there was two years to get ready. Yeah, so that's interesting. So one of the hypotheticals that I put out there and I got maybe like some nudges that I might be right, is that the like the foreign data sets, it's the CSIS director who can authorize as the minister's delegate. They have to go to the minister within 90 days. 
right? That's the, that's the requirement, not the IC within 90 days, the minister. So if the uh, minister was dragging his heels for three months, that would explain why it hasn't gone up to the IC yet. But when it comes to the federal court, there's no intermediary. The act says within 90 days, they have to make a request to the federal court. And they haven't as of December of 2019, six months later. So, so is that on CSIS or the minister? I don't know. Okay. We don't know. Interesting. There's nothing about it in the entire report. And there's no explanation for this lack of requests to the IC in the IC report. So that's a really interesting example of how you can use these reports to kind of maybe raise interesting questions as to how these new powers are being used or perhaps aren't being used in ways that maybe they should be used. And one would think if you really, really needed this power when you've had it, you know, coming down the pipeline for two years and then it's been another six months, you would ask for the authority to have data sets, right? Same with TRMs, not a single TRM. By that you mean threat reduction measure. reduction measure request, right? right, That would potentially violate the charter or Canadian law. If you really need that power, there hasn't been a single one since 2015. How bad do you need it if you've never asked for it? Huh. So my takeaway here from listening to you guys is that shorter is better (laughs) in some ways. Detail is good. And, you know, we complained a lot about the former system of CERC and OCSEC, but there was a lot of information in there that you guys used in your research to kind of give you indications what was going on that we don't necessarily have now, at least in the NCRO report. Do you guys have any like kind of final comments on this bill? Is there anything we're missing with the ICO report? I don't have anything to add on ICO. On on NCRO, I would just say, you know, we're, we're watching this process just at its beginning and it's it's too soon to judge where they're going with it. There's some good stuff here, but certainly some worrisome directions too. Right. And plus we should also acknowledge this is the middle of a pandemic. These reports yeah. are produced in environments that are, you know, classified and highly secure and the, you, know, it, you can't have full staff working in these offices right now. So that also may be having an impact on, on how this is working. So yeah, that's right. We've put a lot of responsibility onto these agencies for basically, you know, having augmented a lot of powers. So it will be interesting to see how this works in the future with regards to transparency oversight and just being able to do good research on the national security and intelligence community in Canada. So with that, you know, this has been a long episode, but a good episode and hopefully some useful feedback for our friends in the review agencies. And of course, it's always meant with good intentions. (laughs) And we will, of course, be looking forward to the 1800 different reports that'll be coming out in the next three years by by your count. And I want to thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Steph. Cheers. Cheers.